I want to welcome both Katie and Kimberly from Date with Dateline to the Crime Lines After Show. Welcome to the show. Do you, either one of you want to give your podcast elevator pitch while we're here? We do lovingly snarky recaps of Dateline episodes. We are huge Dateline fans, and we break down and recap each episode. That's a good elevator pitch. That that sums it up. It was good. Confident. I liked it. <laughs> I couldn't have been less confident about it. I it, that I know. I'm sorry. It was good, though. Good job. <laughs> I'm wondering why of all the true crime, you know, 26 to 48 minute long shows out there, why Dateline? Oh, it's the best one. Is that a good answer? It Dateline is number one. When we started the podcast, Kimberly was a huge fan, and I didn't know it very well. I knew the episodes that Kimberly had told me, so she would tell me episodes of it. Um, and I said, why don't we do this on a microphone? And then the podcast was born. And so you've been friends for a while? Too long. A long <laughs> time. Many, many years. 22 years-ish? 22 like years. Mm-hmm. So how was the transition from friendship to working together? Pretty smooth just because we had actually worked small jobs together before. So we both trusted each other enough to know that the other person was going to get the job done. So that helped a little bit. We had a little bit of a leg up because we'd worked at some very difficult, fast-paced jobs in college together. One very important called Margarita Cantina, where we sold wine margaritas at different concert venues throughout Los Angeles. It was it was hard work, but <laughs> we got it done. That sounds really uh, busy. Lots of drunk people. So sticky. You were so sticky at the end of the day. I can't even describe it. There was like a layer of just weird sugary drink on your arms. It was crazy, but it was it was character building. And that's how we learned each other's work ethic. So important, important work. So that has translated into a podcast somehow, at least it's less sticky. Uh, the subject matter is <laughs> a little bit different. Um I get pretty sweaty when we record, so I'm just sticky in a different way. <laughs> I was wondering, we'll start with favorite Dateline correspondent. Do you guys have a favorite? We have, I think, favorites, but we don't say them. Okay. Well, Katie's pretty open about... I am. Yeah. I have a favorite cat and a favorite Dateline correspondent. I, I am no, I make no bones <laughs> about this. Um, it's probably lucky I don't have children because it would be complicated. <laughs> My favorite Dateline correspondent is Dennis, Dennis Murphy. Mine too. <laughs> what I love about his interview style is that he'll be like, the guy's like, well, I didn't do it. And he's like, yeah, but you can see why we think you're a terrible person, right? And the guy, like, he just gets these people in a corner where they're basically saying, yes, I am the scum of the earth, but I didn't kill my wife. Like, I don't know, like every interview is like that. And just the way he says it so deadpan like but you know you're terrible right i love it i love it dennis is a gem he's a gem he's a national treasure in my opinion he has a strange lack of self-awareness sometimes like with the if he's making someone uncomfortable in an interview and he just kind of keeps going he's amazing he's like true to himself and a classic and he uses these old like gumshoe expressions we just adore him but I will not say who my favorite is. 
I will say that my favorite on Twitter is Josh Mankiewicz because he responds to people. He is great. If you do not follow him on Twitter, he's a lot of fun. He's amazing. He's one of our BFFs. He's been on our show maybe five or six times and has basically invited himself on our show every time he has a future episode coming on. So he will be on next week. Nice. Yeah, he's amazing. We we adore him. He's so supportive of the podcast and so supportive of all Dateline listeners, like really exactly what you said. He responds to everybody and wants to talk about the show. And yeah, he's amazing. He's, they call him the mayor of CrimeCon because he just walks around talking to people. I met him and Keith at, it was in Nashville, heaven help them. It was like 10 p.m. and they were trying to get dinner. <laughs> and it was 10 p.m. and I had been in the bar for a couple hours at that point. So I was just like, oh, my God, you're here. And I was like, you know, maybe if I was a little more sober, this would have gone better. But um, <laughs> it was it was still fun. I mean, it was great. I mean, I know they just wanted to have dinner, but they were both so nice about it. Always so nice. I think it's good to be a little had a few <laughs> when you when you meet them for the first time, because then you're a little looser. And so you're more apt to yes. walk up. Uh, Keith Morrison is a little intimidating to walk up to, you know, and be like, hello. I, I Every time I see him, I want to say, hi, Mr. Morrison. You might not remember me. It's a whole introduction <laughs> every single time because I get so nervous. It's really bad. <laughs> I get that way about Andrea. Like, I'm, she's yeah. just so beautiful and such, like, a a feminine lady, but is also so incredibly strong and such a yeah. amazingly tough interviewer. And I just am, and she's like a mom of six kids. I'm just sort of in awe of her. And it makes me, I kind of shut down because like, she's everything I'm not. There are some people you see them and they're just like so physically beautiful that it's hard to approach them. And she's definitely in that category. Like you notice her in a crowd of people. For sure. She has a whole bunch of kids, but she has all girls and then one boy. Yes. See, I'm the opposite. I have five boys and one girl. So I I swapped that around. But God bless you. That's a lot of boys. Yeah. Wow. She has all of her kids, though, are kind of younger. My I have a, a gap. And so mine, I have some older ones, which helps space them out a bit. And they can help you when you need. That's good. They can help you if you need help. Oh, it's great. When we went to Seattle for a meetup with Josh from True Crime Bullshit, we went to the CrimeCon after meetup in Vegas. And it's because we paid our older kids who were like literal adults there you go. to watch our two little ones. So it's super helpful. At least you pay them too. It's not like a Duggar situation where the older ones just have to become second mothers. The kids are so helpful just like day to day that whenever it's something extra, I always I'm like, I'll, I'll pay you because I'd have to pay a babysitter. Uh-huh. And I'd rather them be with their brother or their sister. So right. it works out a lot better. Yeah, you don't have to vet their brother or sister. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I already know they're terrible. I raised them. <laughs> exactly right. I know what all the issues are going to be. I know what kind of mess I'm going to come home to. Like, I just know what's going to happen. I know that I'm going to spend three days reprogramming them to bedtimes, bath, brushing teeth, all of those usual things. That's why I'm never gone for more than a weekend. It's very smart. <laughs> but I am curious, what do you think, what are the elements of the of a good Dateline episode? 
Well, we have bingo cards and we've had bingo cards for Dateline since the beginning and they keep getting evolved. Um, And they have things like cell phone pings, love triangle, things with the host where the host like laughs at someone's face because they think they're so dumb. Just uh, questionable facial hair. We have just all over and things about crimes like a staircase is involved or a bathtub is involved. So I think the ones that are great are the ones that either have a ton of elements, so you might win a bingo, or it has something we've never seen before. It's not on the bingo cards. Like in our most recent one with Josh Mankiewicz, we had polyamorous pirates. Never seen that before. That's a new one. Or the snake with Andrea a few weeks ago. She huge. Huge anaconda wrapped around yeah. our beloved Andrea Canning. And <laughs> it was a snake dealer that was murdered. And the police thought a, a, like a 600 pound snake did it. So those are amazing. And I think those are make it sort of stand out. Right. Like, I mean, a, a good cowboy church love triangle is always fun. Love, love a cowboy church love triangle. Oh, boy. Yes. Especially in a strip mall. Cowboy church in a strip mall for the win. Do you listen to the Dateline podcasts, that the long-form ones they've done on Lori Vallow, The Thing About Pam, Helen and Olga? Is that the other one they did? Yes. And I mean, I think Helen and Olga was a great one for being just like two old ladies <laughs> who you wouldn't see coming. Exactly. And we had covered them from an ID network show on a, because we do double dates, which are Sometimes we do a Friday episode, like an ID or something like that. And so we had covered them on another case, but they are just evil, evil old ladies. And that's another thing that would make a great dateline, evil old ladies. Or an ID show. Have we had that as an ID show? They have almost everything covered in those ID shows. It would be called evil old ladies. (laughs) Evil elders? Evil elders, E-E. No, we we had Elder Skelter. Oh, that's right. Elder Skelter. <laughs> and that was it. That was like only three episodes. ID has the craziest shows. And they had the what the intro for the show is like a bunch of dentures dropping into a martini glass. It's bananas. One of my favorite things when I'm researching a case, particularly one from like the 80s or 90s, is finding those short lived two to three season ID type shows. So I found one that was called like Happily Never After, which is about people who like get killed shortly after the marriage, which that's fine. But it was just like so dramatic and so cheesy. And I think the true crime documentaries have kind of upped the ante on that sort of thing. So we don't see as many cheesy intros and stuff in new shows. So watching it in the older ones where it was definitely more salacious. But Dateline's been pretty consistently news-based. So they've never really had that. Um, A few hokey one-liners. They don't do reenactments, for sure. And the the ID ones we cover, we strictly cover ones with reenactments because we want to see the terrible acting and the terrible directing choices. We want it to be so, so cheesy. Well, I recorded a Patreon bonus episode with Robin Warder because The very first segment of the first episode Robert Stack hosted on Unsolved Mysteries has been solved. So we covered that case in depth. But back then when they first started Unsolved Mysteries, those reenactments, they would actually ask the 
actual witnesses and family to participate. Oh. They're reliving being told their daughter died, you know? No, 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 no. That's cruel. And none of them are trained actors. So you're like, wow, this reenactment's cheesy. Then they shoot. They, they like clip to the interview and you're like, oh, it was actually that her mom. That was the real mom. That was oh terrible. They they kind of, you know, stopped. Doing <laughs> so, somehow ethics came into play and they stopped doing that. Thank goodness. Yeah. I just want to be in the room where they made that decision that that would be a good idea for the show. And no one stood up and said, do you think that might traumatize the person even further? Is this trauma informed reporting? Never heard of it. Well, I mean, that was like, what, 1980-something, so not not quite the same as it is today. They would never do that today. No, it also feels like a money call where somebody was like, I know how we can save a few dollars. Let's not hire <laughs> actors. Let's go ahead and ask the families if they'll participate, right? Because they don't know how the show's going to do. So they're like, well, let's save a few bucks. Speaking of reenactments, there's a podcast that Crime Writers Uncovered called uh, – the Yuba County Five, I think it's called. And it's so good, except it has these terrible reenactments with these actors that are overacting the scenes. And it's so not necessary. And it basically ruined it for them. And then I said, I'm going to listen. It can't be as bad as they're saying it is. And it's like worse. Oh, And it's such a good story. And it's a good podcast. And it's very well intentioned. But the acting of these reenactments are so terrible. It ruined it for me. I couldn't even continue. This is being said by two people that sometimes act out things unintentionally <laughs> while <Yeah. laughs> while recapping. But but ours is a comedy sort of podcast, kind of. It's it's supposed to be funny. Uh, I can't claim that it's funny, but uh, <laughs> this is like a dead serious podcast. And oh, that's rough. That's a that's a bad decision. Yeah, it's a, it was a really bad decision. Yeah. I know that I've listened to a lot of podcasts where they're like, okay, we have the interrogation like transcript, but we don't have the tape, so we're going to reenact it with actors. And they have actors who just, you can tell they're reading it, but it's not, like, that's better than overacting. Yes. (laughs) Like, if you got to pick one. Yes. Underact it, because overacting, especially when it's only audio, is so hard. I say hire Katie for all of those because she's done voiceover. She has a great voice. She won't overact it. I might now. I feel like it, I feel like it's hard. You're playing police interrogator number one. So you you found the jewels. See, I feel like it's hard to not go into like some sort of character. That, I don't know. It could get rough. Yeah. So you should do the voice acting for like satire true crime shows. There we go. Like yes. Santa maybe yes. done disappeared. Old radio, you know, those kind of radio murder mysteries. Yes. That that's I feel like that overacting vein. Oh boy. I feel so did the podcast do they did they get some feedback? The Yuba City five? I haven't looked at the comments in my um podcast app, but it may work in their favor. The Yuba, the Yuba Five disappearance is fascinating, and the research on this podcast is good. The dramatic reenactment, however, is jarring and tonally out of place. Please just go back to reporting instead of trying to turn a tragedy into an audio play. So that's the top comment on uh, my podcast app. So I guess they are getting that feedback. Maybe they could just re-edit it and take it out. Yeah, there you go. And I really feel like when you're talking about a tragedy you have to be careful with that sort of thing because you also don't want to be disrespectful to 
to what happened. And like you said, even well-intentioned, it may have just missed the mark. And I know I've had podcast episodes where I've missed the mark on something. And thank you, dear listeners, <laughs> who make sure I know that I missed the mark on it. But I've I've talked about in my Q&A last year that a lot of those corrections that come in are just really, they're things that I would never have known about if they didn't come in. Language changes. Yes. Rapidly. Yes. And one of the like, changes is how you discuss car, quote unquote, accidents. Like saying accident implies there's no fault, that it just accidentally happened. And that's rarely true. And so you should be more specific and say things like collision or really? crash. And I just covered a case where all the reporting from when it happened in the 80s is all accident, 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 when clearly, <laughs> I mean, if I was talking about it, there was no accident. So... And, you know, those things like had someone not written in and been like, hey, just thought you might want to know. I would never have known to like even do that. So I do appreciate most of my listeners who write in are always nice about it. I agree. Anyone who's mean about it isn't listening to my show anyway. <laughs> like they're they're one and done. They didn't like the show and they're moving on and they're just sure. going to leave a parting comment as they go. I like when they say we know how hard you guys try to be. Uh, appropriate and not to insult anyone. So I just wanted to let you know that the language on this has changed now and we're supposed to try to say this. And like, we know you didn't mean anything by it. I appreciate those sort of things. Mm -hmm. Me too. I mean, it makes my podcast better, makes me a better person. And I'm, I'm always open to that kind of information because I, I am trying, but I'm not tuned into every single thing out there. We can't. We can't all know everything. No. So, and that's how we learn things is by someone telling us nicely. And nicely is always appreciated. <laughs> right. Always appreciated. Yes. But do you guys have favorite Dateline episodes or like things that make an episode just it for you? Like this is the episode I'm going to love the most. For me personally, I love religious hypocrisy episodes. So anytime it's a pastor involved um, and he is doing really shady things, trying to sleep with all the women in his church, kills his wife to sleep with more women. There's several. That's not, it's not even just one dateline that has happened a handful of times. And so those I would say are my favorites. And I would say um, a heist. If there's a heist, I'm there. So not always the datelines that are revolving around murder, actually, or con men. I, I really like those episodes if it's especially because they tend to be international. So it's kind of fun. They're going to a lot of different places. Those are and I shouldn't say con man, con persons, people that con people that are involved in yeah. the long con. And because we've seen both male and female. Yes. So it's really those are those are the ones that I really enjoy. So the one that, you know, I talked about this week that we're going to discuss in a second is a spouse killing a spouse, which is a lot of true crime. I mean, you're most likely to be killed by that person. Yeah. Nine, I would say 90% of datelines, 95 even, or that. Yeah. I like the ones that are that are twistier and there's you're on more of a journey with them. And I know that Keith tends to do a lot of those because, you know, the thing about Pam which I know very well, mm -hmm. and then the Lori Vallow case, which you could tell that one. You can tell when 
a cases affecting the correspondent, even Keith, who doesn't really try to show it. But when he's interviewing Leah Askey about Russ and he's just the look on his face or when he's talking to J.J. Vallow's grandparents, like you can tell he, he's got feelings. <laughs> and if he was giving commentary, boy, it would be colorful. There was this uh, moment in the Leah Askey interview where Katie and Katie was obsessed with it, where he took this pile of papers and kind of just put them down like I'm done now. And I made my first gif out of it. And I was so proud. Date, date, <laughs> date with Dateline. Follow us on Twitter. Date, Dateline. I made my first gif of that moment. It was incredible. He was just, it was just, you could see it in his face and his full body language leaned in and was like, well, we're done here. You know, did those things where you get your papers all together in a line and just sort of looked at her, didn't say anything, was like, we're going to, we're, I'm going to go. Yeah. This is the end. <laughs> I know, I mean, Josh Mankiewicz is a lot more expressive in general, but, you know, but with Keith, every once in a while, something just gets to him or he's just done. Oh, Yeah. I mean, he cussed last season, like hardcore oh, yeah. cussed, and, um, which is amazing also because we don't cuss on our show, but he cussed and got bleeped out because he was just so angry with this person. And he said, I don't give a sweet flying F about that. And it was like, Keith Morrison, is that you? Who, who invaded your body? I love it, this passion. He was mad. Where, yeah, where Dennis would just keep going with the questioning and they yeah. would get like, yeah, <laughs> like more and more pointed. Yeah. Until he's finally like, you know, you're going to hell, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I feel like, like every interview, now that you've heard me say that, listen to his interviews. And there's at some point, if he ever gets the accused in front of him, he lets them know what a terrible person they are. <laughs> he, makes, he makes sure he leaves the interview with that knowledge firmly established. And I don't know if they even know what's happening to them. They're just like, oh, yeah. No, I think afterwards it hits them. (laughs) Did Dennis Murphy say I'm going to hell? (laughs) Because he is so sort of sweet looking. Yeah. Like he just sort of has one of those faces, you know. Yeah, And he is also very sweet. I do have to say, probably the thing that one of the top things that impressed me the most about Dennis is Kimberly and I gave him, uh, we gave all the host gifts. Where were we, Kimberly? What was it? New Orleans? I think it was at CrimeCon in New Orleans, yeah. Yeah, and we made uh, Kimberly made these amazing cross-stitches for each of the hosts, and we gave one to Dennis, and a few weeks later, we got a handwritten thank you note from Dennis. It was so classy and just such a lost art to have the handwritten. I just, he's the sweetest man, I think. But then he's also the, the sneakiest man. <laughs> Gets it in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. So the episode that this was, um, I actually found that you guys had covered it when I checked to see if it's been covered on podcasts before. Sometimes I don't realize how many podcasts have covered a case until I look for it. And then I'm like, oh, my listeners have probably already heard this. I try to do cases that are new for the listeners, but also if they're not covered a lot, they need more exposure or often there's something worth talking about in there that's not being talked about. So you know, I tried to do that. And then I saw that you had covered this one. And every other true crime show called it acid something, but they called it bad chemistry, which I thought was better than going for the low hanging fruit of acid in their title. Dateline titles are always great. They have several with the same title, but this is the only bad chemistry, I think. Really? Yeah, there's a lot of 
toxic, there's like a few toxics and then toxic relations. There's two suspicions. There's a lot of the house on blank drive, road, whatever, the mystery of whatever that city is. They they try. <laughs> After how many seasons, there's only so many titles. You run out of run out of ideas. You how you run out. Yeah, absolutely. But this case, which you guys covered a while ago, so I don't know how familiar, re-familiarized you are with it. I re-listened. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> One of the funniest things when I like watch the Dateline thing is that they're pronouncing her name incorrectly the entire episode. <laughs> yes, they are. There's another true crime show that did the same thing. Everyone who's talking about her who knew her is saying Larissa. And then the the narrator keeps saying Larissa. Not that I care. <laughs> Mispronounce her name all you want. And then we pronounced her wrong as well, probably, because we were copying what Keith did. Right. And I would have said Larissa if I hadn't seen the show. And they were saying Larissa. And then they did an interview with someone who knew her. And that person said Larissa. And I'm like, what did they say? And she says it on the stand. They say, what is your name? And she says, Larissa. And I said, oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> but then when you watch her appellate attorney speak, she says Larissa. And I'm like, your attorney doesn't know your name? What's going on? But I'm telling you, rural Missouri, they just take a name and they, they say it however they want to say it. Yeah, I think they thought she says it that way, whatever ethnicity she is. And we're going to say, it. sorry, I'm pissing <laughs> off everyone in Missouri. Uh, and we're going to say it yeah. our way. She's a small town Missouri. I mean, I'm in Missouri right now. I'm in the city, though. But I uh, definitely know that you can't you can't assume name pronunciation. So what about this case? Did you think made it a good Dateline case? Well, Katie loved it at the beginning when I sent it to her, didn't you? Because at the beginning, I was re-listening to our episode and you were just like, this has everything. A vat of acid. When have we seen that before? It's like... <laughs> I would say it makes it the, the per well, first of all, because it is a husband and wife murder, which is sort of a, a theme in Dateline. And then I would say a lover, possible lover involved. So there's some sort of question of infidelity, even though that's not confirmed in this episode. It's really hinted to and leaves you with all of these questions about the relationship between Larissa and her questionable assistant slash possible boyfriend a much younger much younger helper slash lover and then you've got i would say for this case re-listening to it now it is hearkening to something that is very big in the media right this minute which is wild as we're listening to it because there's a case that everyone's watching right now right which has a lot of audio attached to it and this has a lot of actual audio of her yelling at at her husband. So I, I do like it whenever they bring in strong audio or visual stuff. And I feel like this case does it particularly well. Also, I don't know, something about the Central Valley of California, which is where they are. It's where I grew up. So I'm naturally inclined to understand exactly what's happening here. I was like, oh, okay. It's a this is a special world that we are. Yeah. <laughs> I know these people. Yeah. I have a friend out here who grew up in Fresno, and she's like, whatever you think about California, that's not Fresno. That's 100% correct. Okay. I grew up in a smaller town about 45 minutes outside of Fresno, and Fresno was our big city. 
So, yeah, she's right. <laughs> it's not California, California. When you think of like San Francisco yeah. or L.A., no, no, ma'am. No. <laughs> I've only been to San Francisco, so that is my entire understanding of California. That's lovely. Keep it. That's good for you. <laughs> yeah, hold on to that. That's perfect. Yeah. One of the things I thought was really interesting about this case is just having that younger, almost hapless accomplice where, boy, does he come off as just a complete moron, like through the entire <laughs> thing. But he was actually an honor student who had multiple scholarships to college. And somewhere between 18 and 21, I don't know what happened to him. Larissa happened. She came into his life. It was like, get a taser gun. Wow. I just don't understand how he went from, yeah, I'm going to work in your lab to, okay, I'm going to babysit your kid, do all your errands, do stuff around the house for you, buy you a stun gun, buy you all this stuff, rob someone's house. And there's not a lot of information on that. If I can hearken to other episodes of Dateline. There's another one called While He Was While They Were Sleeping. Sorry, there's a while they were sleeping, while he was sleeping, and a while she was sleeping. <laughs> and none of them star Bill Pullman or Sandra Bullock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh so I think this is while they were sleeping. And it also features a woman who sort of seduces a younger man and he becomes just he'll do anything for her. And she probably told him a lot of lies about her husband that made him think, feel like he was justified in helping her and uh, had this sort of manipulative power over him. It's crazy. In the appellate documents, it talks about how he got really attached to her son who was younger and he kind of took on this big brother role so to some degree, she could have been saying, Tim's going to try to get custody and you know how he is. You know what a terrible person he is. And now he's going to have our son. You know, I definitely can see that. But both of them have denied that there was any romance in this relationship, both of them. And you would think one of them would have kind of used it because they threw each other under the bus effectively. But you would have thought one of them would have used that if they had a romantic relationship. But who does all this stuff for someone who they're not having a romantic relationship with? Was there a promise of that? Like she was holding that over him? Like maybe we can be together later if this gets done? Yeah, I don't know. It's odd. But I, you know, my daughter is 16. She loves um, Crime Watch Daily. We were kind of talking about the case. And she's like, oh, so this woman must have really had something if she's, you know, here she is in her 40s. She's got this 21-year-old good-looking guy doing everything for her. And I'm like, according to everybody, she was like a complete beast of a human being. <laughs> she was loud. She was abrasive. She bullied people. And she moved through the world like she owned it. And not, and not in a good, powerful, confident way. Right. What was his childhood like? Do we know about his family? Because that sort of makes me think mommy issues. He still lived at home with both of his parents at the time. His mom spoke at her, uh, Larissa's sentencing and said, you ruined our lives. Like She spoke out against her at the sentencing. So I don't know, maybe he was just more vulnerable to, to it. 
I'm wondering if he's also just one of those, because we all want it to be romantic, because that kind of makes it make sense in a way. It makes it it makes it make sense in our heads mm-hmm. if there's some sort of romantic angle, which is why it's hard to imagine there's not. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering if he is like one of those ultimate people pleaser personality types, where a person in authority is sort of just telling him what to do, and he just kind of does it out of some, I don't know, weird loyalty respect issues. It could be something. And she picked up on that, honed in on it, and then used it completely to her advantage. It almost sounds like a cult. Yeah. Like, and she's the cult leader, and it's a cult of one or two. Yeah, it's very bizarre. Kind of like a Chad Daybell, Lori Vallow, only it's much clearer in this situation who was the dominant personality. Right. He said that when they went to the house, he thought they were going to rob him again. And I honestly believe him. I think that is what happened. But once he saw her attacking Tim and he didn't do anything, that's when he became culpable for the murder. Yes. I know she threw it. She's like, nope, he did it. And I just helped him clean it up. But I mean, I don't believe her at all. Like her story doesn't make any sense. I do believe his story. And he folded pretty quick. (laughs) He was like 10 minutes yeah and he was pretty consistent in his story whereas her story had had ups and downs and changes and things that just flat out weren't true and they could prove weren't true but she still decided to stick with it yeah of course my episode is actually going to be a two-parter because it's getting very very long at the moment (laughs) so uh there there's a lot i mean the main sources i used is they both had very very um in-depth appeals and those are the documents I mostly used. They both appealed. They both lost their appeal um, because what are they going to appeal on? But wow, the appellate documents were hundreds of pages. Really? Were there, was there anything strange? Can you tell us? Was there anything sort of surprising? I will say the strangest thing, and this actually did come up at the trial, but a lot of um, a lot of the coverage I've seen kind of glosses over it. The defense had an expert, Larissa's defense had an expert who said there's no way in the the couple of, like, the time period that Tim's body was in the acid, would it have eaten away that much of his body? And so they, the defense expert says that was probably only, he was probably dismembered at some point, like, at least partially. And... That's causing issues on the state side because they don't have evidence of a crime scene like that. They don't have blood everywhere. They don't have a chainsaw. They don't have any of that. But there was an attempt to dismember his feet. That's proven. They had an explanation for it. But they said that that much of his body would not have been eaten away if his whole body was put in the acid. But I don't know. I'm not about to go sitting there looking it up or doing experiments on it. But that was probably the biggest thing in the appeal was just kind of a hole in the case that I, that's something I would like answered. But also, how would they prove, I mean, I guess, what would it mean if he'd been in there longer? So if the assumption based on that is that he was put in the barrel much earlier, we know when he went missing. So they were, they were using it to say that his whole body didn't go in and that he was dismembered and half his body was elsewhere. And that the police did not, because they have this huge gap, they didn't investigate. They didn't find where that ah. happened. They didn't find the other part of the body. And it wasn't the lab, her house, her garage, her shed, her anything 
it cast a reasonable doubt on the full investigation and how oh. thorough it was. But I just thought, in the end, I don't think it matters anything. Like, how much of him was in the barrel or not doesn't really matter if they killed him. Like that That's the part that matters. The disposal doesn't. I guess it matters who did it, maybe, because is there another charge they would add on about, you know, violating a corpse or something? Or They would get that just for the acid Gotcha. Part. It's really just to cast aspersions on the on the investigation and to say the investigation wasn't thorough enough and also to say there's more to the story if it if there was like did they look for a saw did they look to see who purchased a saw did they look for any of that but that was probably the most interesting thing a lot of the appeal was just the general stuff ineffective counsel yeah well she did the ineffective assistance of counsel because so she had an expert testify about battered woman syndrome that it was the emotional abuse and being trapped in the marriage with Tim, which from every other report, that's not the direction the abuse went in, but whatever, that that would explain some of her behaviors like those voicemails and on and on. Well, her they allowed the jury to consider voluntary manslaughter. Like if they and that the battered spouse expert could back up that it was manslaughter. But then her defense didn't mention that in their closing. They didn't say, and if you so happen to think she did it, you are also allowed to consider that she was a battered spouse, like emotionally battered. And she wanted ineffective assistance of counsel because they didn't do that in their closing. And the appellate court was basically like, but that wasn't your defense. Your defense was you didn't do it. But if you think she did, yeah. Yeah, my client didn't do it. But, I mean, if she did, let's say, here's another option. You don't get multiple defense. You pick a defense and you go with it. It's your strategy. And her strategy was, I didn't do it. Do you think they did that on purpose? The defense team just didn't mention it? Because maybe they were not her biggest fan? (laughs) I I think it was a strategy. I think they put the battered spouse expert on the stand so that the jury would have it in their back of their minds, but they didn't bring it up again because they were were going for the acquittal. And if they conceded anything in that closing, she was, I mean, she was going to be found guilty anyway, because, you know, she did it (laughs) And and they had a lot of evidence. And I mean, she took the stand, he took the stand, they all tried to explain it away, but it wasn't going anywhere. But yeah, it's interesting because one of the things I do is I'll watch a forensic files and be like, oh, that case is really interesting. And I'll look it up and I'll find all this other stuff. Well, that happened with this Dateline one. This was a recommendation from a listener and it was recommended based on Snapped. And I was like, okay, well, if it's on Snapped, it's on Dateline, there should probably be enough information out there. And the next thing I know, I've like typed up 12,000 words on a rough draft. (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be two episodes. Because there's just, there's so much to this case that the show, I mean, for the most part, what you need to do is pick a narrative and do and present it. And that's what most shows do. That's what most podcasts do. But in my podcast, I just kind of do all, like I leave out very little. And so once you get into that kind of detail, my episodes take forever. Oh, but they're much appreciated 
Because those of us that like detail. Yeah, Katie loves a deep dive, like a deep, deep dive. I want all the papers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you both for coming on and giving me some of your time. It was so nice to finally meet you, even if it's on a screen. Thank you. So good to meet you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's nice to meet you, too. Yeah, and hopefully we'll meet up at some random podcast event or true crime event. I don't know if you have anything on your calendar for the year. Um, we were talking about maybe the one in uh, August in Dallas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the True Crime Podcast Festival. We just got CrimeCon out of the way, and I sort of sort of opened the floodgates of me being like, yeah, maybe I could go out into the world again. <laughs> so Maybe this can work out. People are not so bad. Will you be there? Yeah, I will. I'll be at the Dallas event for sure. All right. Well, there you go. There's another tick in the pro column. That's good. Okay. Yeah, I'm doing a roundtable with Bob from Defense Diaries. Oh, great. We are going to be talking about media coverage and domestic violence. We're using a very specific case where we are. Um, it's going to be a. It's going to be a great. Roundtable, one of the things I like about True Crime Podcast is they're doing panels, but they're also doing roundtables so that the audience can discuss cases rather than just sit there and listen. Oh, the audience is involved in the roundtable. So it'll be, you know, while I have a topic, I also have a case that goes with the topic that we're going to discuss and go over. So it's going to be very exciting. Very exciting. That's good. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. And that is Date with Dateline. You are in every podcast app, I assume, all over social media. Do you do TikTok yet? Um, I have a TikTok account and I posted something, but it was something that a listener made for us, an animation of one of our conversations. So I have not yet created, but um, we're on, we're bravely on there, which for our age is impressive, question mark. Yeah, my kids would say it's a little cringy, but yes, I'm also on TikTok. But okay, so all the social media platforms, they can find you. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. <laughs>